The Dickheads are presented in color. Hey, Dickheads! Like a pink laser beam of truth beaming from Texas, Ohio, and San Diego to your brain hole. I am your longtime resident dickhead, and joining me, the latest, newest host of the Dickheads podcast, Professor D. Harlan Wilson. And our special guest today is another person who teaches PKD. Uh, that's Keith Giles, who's going to be our interview subject for the day. For many PKD-related reasons, Keith, welcome to the Dickheads podcast. Oh, David, uh, thank you so much. And David, thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> good to be here. It's Just so you, real quick, and we should have, I should have told you this before we hit record, it's pronounced Giles. Giles, you know, I'm Keith sorry. Giles, so that's fine. No big deal. Um, <laughs> yeah, good to, very, very happy to be here. Love your podcast. A huge fellow K-Dick fan, and uh, it's really great to be able to talk to you guys about uh, my favorite sci-fi author. Right. Now, we're going to get into your background and a little bit about where you came from, but my first thing first is that a, a lot of your background is that you're you you're known for having once been a pastor and mm -hmm. writing these books about religion. Was mm -hmm. it PKD or serious religion that came first for you? And what's your origin story? Oh, no, there you go. What a great way to ask that question. Um, well, a little bit about the same time, I guess. Um, I mean, you know, it's sort of like uh, I, I grew up in Texas. Um, had conservative parents and big surprise, I became a Southern Baptist um, because, you know, what else can you do in Texas? So uh, that's that's how I kind of got into it. And but I think I discovered Philip K. Dick. Um, probably, I, I mean, I think I discovered him probably the way a lot of people do was like right when Blade Runner came out. And, you know, I was I think I was in it was in what, 1982, right? Um, right. I probably saw it in 83 because I think I saw it on cable. So it was probably a year later I saw it on cable um, and it just blew my mind. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And I was already reading science fiction. I was into like Alan Dean Foster and stuff like that. Um, and I just remember going in and they had that they had the novel for, you know, Blade Runner, which which is, of course, not the novel of the movie. It's do I was Dream of Electric Sheep. And I, that was the first Philip K. Dick I read. And then I was just like, I want to get everything my hands on anything this guy wrote. It was just so amazing. So that's kind of when I kind of got into it. Um, the theology thing developed about alongside that. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, people know me mainly as an author writing. Um, I just wrote like a seven part series of books called Jesus, the Jesus Un series. And um, each book is dealing with different aspects of theology, basically how screwed up and toxic most of it is and trying to help people who are trapped in it, find their way out of it with their sanity intact. Um, so that's what those books are about. And you find um, yourself debating religious figures quite oh, a bit. How did? Oh the... yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I debated because of those books. Uh, you, yeah, a little bit because of those books. Um, I've done several debates like that online. Um, the one I just did it was in Houston with this guy, Doctor James White. I say doctor in quotes because he's technically not really a doctor, but you know he he, he plays one. Um, anyway, so I debated him in Houston on. What is biblical marriage? And um, yeah, it was just it was it was actually really successful. I was very happy with how that went. And yeah, so I, I, I kind of get in trouble. It's one of these things where like I'm I'm too uh, sort of progressive for most Christians, and I'm 
and I'm too Christian for most non-Christians. You know what I mean? So I'm kind of in this no man's land. Did Dick's fiction function in any way for you uh, years ago, you know, uh, uh, as uh, agency, uh, given uh, his like proclivity for, you know, dark Gnosticism and stuff like that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Uh, not at the time. I mean, I, I caught on to it when I was reading it at the time. But I, at the, you know, when I was younger, I was still pretty evangelical, pretty, you know, conservative. Um, it wasn't until I was like in my probably 30s, you know, that I kind of started thinking through some of these things theologically. And then I started noticing after the fact, like after I started kind of pulling on the threads, uh, I started noticing, hey, Phil got there before me. Um, and so uh, and then I started reading like, you know, um, before the exegesis, you know, there were um, some books out there that included some of his, um, you know, his writings or some of his letters and things like that, stuff that ended, ended up becoming the published work, the exegesis. So I'd read some of that and you know, he did talk about that a little bit, did some interviews where he did talk about some of the Gnostic stuff, um, and which now I appreciate a whole lot. Um, so, like, I've, I've been teaching a course on the Gospel of Thomas, and, you know, I'm very fascinated by some of the ways that Phil, you know, understood some of that and sometimes misunderstood some of that, um, but, you know, put his own spin on it. And, uh, yeah, I think it's really cool, very fascinating. So it's a nice little overlap, I think. Um Keith is here to promote, he has a series of Philip K. Dick collections called um, Sci-Fi Lullabies, and when we get deeper into this interview, we're going to talk about this, but he, Keith wrote the foreword to the to the first volume. Uh, Tessa Dick wrote, is writing the foreword to the second volume, and I'm writing the foreword for uh, the third one, so... Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing that we're going to be talking about is that in August, you're starting to teach an online class about the gospel of PKD. So you should mention the publisher of the books, too. Who, who, oh, yeah. Who's putting out those? That's Choir, Choir Publishing, um, which, uh, not coincidentally, I am co-owner of Choir Publishing. Oh, OK, cool. So uh, it's sort of like this is sort of a, um, a pet project, you know, kind of a, um, a dream project like, hey, I kind of co-own a publishing company. Why don't, wouldn't it be fun to do this? So that's partly why we're doing it. So you read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. Do you remember what were the next couple ones that you read? Oh, yeah, no, I do. How that I evolution really happened? Yes. So, the yeah, the first one was Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, and I was just astounded. You know, that was so, it was actually better. How, you know, the book, was, you know, I always say the book's better than the movie, but it was, it was better because it was, um, you know, the, the movie and the book are kind of inversions of each other. They kind of are making the same point, but in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, but I just really appreciated so much, you know, what was going on in the novel. And then my second one was Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. Um, frankly, just because it was the other one on the shelf next to Blade Runner after I went back to the store. Um, I read that one. Um, and then I think I read The Man Who Japed, which I really liked. I don't People don't talk about that one very much. but um, I love The Man Who Japed. I'm yeah. a huge fan of it. Yeah. yeah. So I think for sure those are the first three that I read. And then at some point, I think I I came across one of the collected short story things and started jumping into the short stories and uh, really started loving those, you know, as well. Yeah, Blade Runner was my first. And then my second, which and I still have that exact copy. Um, I think it's actually sitting under my computer right now, um, lifting it up. But um, the collected stories of Philip K. Deck, volume two, 
Uh-huh. With the soon-to-be motion picture Total Recall on it, oh, um, David Wilson, what were your first two? Do you remember? So I do actually. For a second there, I was struggling, and I was going to say one of my earliest memories is reading Faith of My Fathers. The, the I guess that's a novelette or something. I mean, it's a longer story. Yeah, yeah. Dangerous Visions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then I remember the first time was in my I did a master's at UMass Boston. And my mentor um, assigned me Man in the High Castle. And then from there, I went and did a master's at University of Liverpool in science fiction studies and read everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. Beginning with Faith of Our Fathers and then just bought all the books and stories. Mm-hmm. And loved it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you can, everyone can quite publicly follow my journey of read the, reading the publication <laughs> order here on the podcast because... I had read like five or six of the novels before doing the podcast and then reading them in order, which I will say changes everything when you read them in order. Really? <laughs> That's why <clears throat> I always ask people which order they read them. That's why I wanted to know, Keith. Oh. You re- um well, that's cool. So, how old were you when you were you were a teenager when you started reading Yeah, reading these deeply. Okay. Yeah, probably 14, 15, something like that, I think. Oh, wow. I think I'm so bad with math. I'm sure I could do the math and figure it out. <laughs> but I was a teenager. Yes, that is accurate. So and have you lived in Texas like most of your life? or, or... Yeah, well, about half of my life. I was actually born in a little town in Tennessee. My mom and dad moved to uh, Texas like when I was in second grade. Um, we left for a bit, came back, you know, moved to El Paso when I was in junior high. And then from junior high all the way through college, graduated at UT El Paso, met my wife there. Um, with a degree in creative writing and a minor in philosophy, oh. and um, which is another reason I appreciate Philip K. Dick because he he's the most philosophical science fiction writer. And um, yeah, then I moved to California, so I lived in Southern California for 25 years. Um, and then you know I had two boys that were born there, and uh, so yeah. And then now I'm back. I'm back in El Paso. I came, we came back here like about three and a half years ago. Wait, you, you were uh, in you, Orange you, County, right? You were in you were in Phil Land. I was yes, and you know that was one of the coolest things about it too. I got to tell a little story. So I lived in Orange, California, for the last eleven years. We moved around a little bit in Orange County. It was like Huntington Beach, Tustin, and then we were in Orange for like the last eleven years before we moved. Um, so when I was in Orange, um, it was really cool. Like you said, it was like Phil Land because I would drive down Santa Ana, go, go through Santa Ana. Um, and I would drive by. I had looked it up, and I figured out the the uh, apartment that he had died in, or that he had a stroke in before he died. I drove by. I drove by where it was every day on my way to work. So one day on my way back, I I kind of drove over, parked, walked around. I think I found the apartment number that he used to be in. Uh, so that was cool. Um, and then at the Orange Library, I'm not kidding. This was this was insane. Um, they had hardback copies of Philip K. Dick. They had a pretty good collection. I would say they probably had like seven or eight titles of Philip K. Dick at the Orange Library. At least two of them, maybe three of them, were signed. Oh, that's like, awesome. I think it was um, Flow My Tears of Policeman Said, Now Wait for Last Year, and maybe Time Out of Joint. And they were signed. Phil, Phil, you know, signed autograph by Phil. And they were just in circulation. Like, I checked them out, I took them home, I'm reading them, and they're, oh, there's his autograph. And I got to say, how many times I thought to myself, how much would it cost me if I just told them I lost the book? Right. Um, because you could have just sh- like 
bound one that? and then just returned it and put the sticker on it. And yeah, I'll just buy a new one. You know, I replaced the book. It's here's 20 bucks, right? But, you know, um, my conscience got the better of me and I couldn't do that. So I actually went to the librarian after a while. It just bothered me so much. Um, a couple of months went by and I finally just went to the head librarian and I said, hey, I just wanted you to know that you have all these, you know, uh, books by Philip K. Dick. She goes, who? And I said, oh, he's a local sci-fi author. He's dead now. You know, I did the whole thing. Blade Runner, Total Recall, all that stuff. And um, and I said, you have like first edition hardbacks in circulation that are signed by him. And I think you could probably get several thousand dollars if you wanted to raise money for the library, like auction them off on eBay or something. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so she acted like, yeah, okay, whatever. Thanks a lot. But like a week later, went back. All those books were gone. Oh, right. Boy. I don't know what happened with him. If someone overheard me and that they lost them or or she just decided, hey, he's got he's right. She looked it up and then they put him in a vault somewhere. Because it's not as if he I and mean, David, you probably know the answer to this. Did he do a lot of book signings? No. I mean, yeah, he, so there's weird. probably a limited number of books that are signed by. How many are there? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's not a ton. Um, well, it's like I passed up an opportunity to buy a John Bruner signed Crucible of Time and I didn't buy it for $25 and it haunts me. Every time I look at my bookshelf, because I passed up that opportunity, uh, um, especially since, you know, he's been dead since the early 90s. It's like, shit. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I had a similar experience, Keith, when I went to the Berkeley Library, because I decided I was going to try and find the 1947 high school yearbook to, to find Ursula Le Guin and Phil's like high school oh, yeah. yearbook pictures. Oh, cool. And I went to the librarian and I said, um, you know, do, did you realize that? And then, by the way, Phil's not in the yearbook because he didn't finish out the school year on campus. Oh, because man. he was so sick that he didn't he wasn't there for senior pictures. Oh. But Ursula Krober is. And I went up to the librarian and I said, this is do you know? I was like, this is Ursula Le Guin's senior picture. And she's like, who? And yeah. I was like, and I, I asked her, do you know who Philip K. Dick and Ursula Le Guin are? And she was like, the librarian at the Berkeley Library was like, nope. And then I, <laughs> I was like, no offense, but that's shameful. Yeah. And then I went on to explain and then she was like, yeah, I feel real bad. And then I was like, and she, I'm sure she was just getting me out of there, but she was like, I'm going to educate myself. And I was like, okay, sure. Mm -hmm. You got, um, you were very involved with um, being a pastor and religion. Of course, your your path has changed a little bit, but tell us your story about how you went from, it was in Orange County that you uh, kind of had your uh, change of heart or, or, yeah. or how you saw things about organized religion. So can you tell us that story? Because that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll try to make it interesting. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I was... Um... Well, I, so I, when I was in El Paso, when I was still in El Paso, the same year I got married, um, I also got licensed and ordained by the Southern Baptist um, Church. And um, but I always, you know, but being my degree, my, my college degree was creative writing and philosophy. Right. So um, I always like was like I would I would serve at a church on staff in some capacity, youth pastor, associate pastor, whatever. Um, but then I always had like a day job, like my real work. Right. But I kind of I had a, so I had like a foot in both sides always uh, growing up and uh, my younger days, and so we ended up in Orange County. We ended up in the Vineyard Movement, 
Um, and we actually, with some friends of ours, we planted a vineyard church in uh, Tustin, California. And next, next door to Irvine, if you don't know where Tustin is. Um, so that was a good experience in general. I mean, I'd never, we'd never done anything like that before. So a lot of it was positive. Um, but in the course of doing it, we also started working with people that were homeless at the time and really felt like that was something like a good thing. Um, and then right about that time, I came across some research that this guy Ray Mayhew had done that blew my mind. It, it was like basically going back to the first century Christian church and showing that um, the the number one reason that the Christianity grew in the first like 200 years um, wasn't persecution. It wasn't miracles. It was it was their radical caring for the poor, the orphan, the widow, uh, the people that were you know on the margins and. So he documented all that. I'm reading all these quotes of early church fathers and stuff. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. We were already doing that kind of work already. And we kind of became convinced, like, that's what church should be. So we left. We walked away and we started a, a little house church group, people meeting in our houses. We didn't have a statement of faith. We didn't have a bank account. We didn't have a 501c3. We didn't, you know, uh, it was basically like, hey, um, do you love Jesus? And do you want to help people that are, you know, uh, suffering, that are hungry? Um, that every penny that you put in the basket, you will see it being used to buy food or help help single mothers pay rent or fix their car or whatever. Um, and we did that. We did that for 11 years, and it was amazing. Um, so that was like a big shift. But once we walked away from sort of organized religion that way, um, then we weren't under an umbrella of any denomination. Uh, I didn't have any sort of like spiritual covering over us. It was just like, Hey, we feel like this is what we should do. We're going to do it, and we did it, and was and it was awesome. Um, and we would basically go and have church with the homeless that right outside Angel Stadium. Uh, there was a huge tent city there for a long time. We would go there and just hang out with them, bring them coffee and donuts and danishes and socks and batteries, whatever else they needed, and just hang out with them. And it was awesome. Um, so we did that. That was really amazing, and that was kind of where I started looking a little more critically at the theology that I was that I was handed as a young man. Um, really kind of looking critically at it. And really most of it's looking at early church history um, because all the stuff that Christians are told today is this is it. Like you're, you're handed something where it's like, this is it and, and there's nothing else. And then you realize that that's not the case, that again, for like at least the first 400 years on most major church doctrines, um, there were many differences of opinion on those things and they all called themselves Christians. Uh, you know, it was only much later that they kind of got more and more narrow and decided, oh, you're a heretic and you're a heretic and we're going to, you know, weed you guys out. Um, that kept going until about the 1500s and uh, in a major way, like putting people to death kind of a thing. Um, but anyway, going, doing the research and stuff, I was kind of like, yeah, things like eternal torment and, um, you know, the, the, the way they look at the cross and all these kind of major doctrines, the second coming, you know, which most people don't know is a doctrine that started in 1845. The whole right. like in times rapture stuff, all that left behind nonsense and late great planet Earth, like that was started by a guy named John Nelson Darby in like 1845. Um, no Christian before that, 1,840 years, no one thought that way. But see, now we think, oh, but that's all there is. This is it's what the Bible says, but it does, it isn't, right? So once I figured out all that stuff for myself, that radically changed the way I thought about my faith, and then that's when I started writing these books, like. I'm, I'm sure other people would appreciate knowing some of the stuff that I've learned. Um, so I ended up writing this seven-part series, the Jesus Sun series. And well, and that gives you, like, 
something that a lot of the people who question Christianity don't have, which is I'm sure when people come to debate you, they think you're not going to know what you're talking about. Yeah. And then when you're so knowledgeable, I'm sure that that sets them back a little bit. But yeah. that also makes you very similar uh, in many ways to a person who was a major figure in Phil's life, which is, of course, Bishop Pike. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, for those who don't know, uh, Bishop Pike was the inspiration for Timothy Archer, the character in the transmigration of Timothy Archer, who was um, put on trial for heresy as the, um, excuse me, the Archdiocese of California and was, you know, a national figure and then ended up writing a book about seances and, you know, became a really interesting person. Like, um, what what is Phil's relationship with Bishop Pike like? Is that something that you relate to with him? Yeah, I mean, I definitely really appreciate, um, you know, when I read Phil and in, in this book, Transmigration of Timothy Archer as well, like um, getting in more of the metaphysical stuff, the mystical side of uh, the faith. Um, I really appreciate that. And especially, and I know that Phil was fascinated by this too, you know, things like with the Nag Hammadi um, text, specifically like the Gospel of Thomas, um, and some of those texts, and uh, it, it's just like it's it's. I mean, for someone who has grown up in the Christian faith, it's this shocking revelation that there are Christianities plural um, for hundreds of years. Um, there's you know again, you're, you're basically sold the story that no, there's just this one Christianity, and everybody has always agreed on all of these things. And then when you go back and look, and you realize that no, there's always been about you know, five or six different kind of brands of Christianity. And, you know, there's just one flavor that happened to have won the day um, that now gets to rewrite the history. So going back to read some of those things, especially, like I said, the mystical stuff and more of the Gnostic stuff, um, I resonate with a lot of that. I think a lot of that's really cool. Well, and I think Bishop Pike was so important for, even though he was long gone by the time we had the, Valis and the pink laser beam stuff. <laughs> the exegesis, I don't think, would have been what it was if Bishop Pike hadn't been like a major figure. Oh yeah, warts and all, because he had a lot of warts. Yeah, well, right? I think, I think, yeah, I, I would guess that probably for Phil, you know, he's talking to this guy who is, um, like, he was a bishop, right, in the Episcopal uh, Church. So this is somebody who does know his stuff you know, when it comes to the Bible and church history and these kind of things. And for Phil to have someone at that level freely talking to him about either some of his doubts or about things that I'm sure he was fascinated with, like, you know, other ways of thinking of the Christ, um, that the the Christ wasn't Jesus' last name, but that Christ was sort of this um, eternal entity source being, you know, uh, uh, that we know now, like when we talk about, like, uh, in quantum science, um, when you, you see these parallels, right? And I know Phil saw this too. He talks about this a lot too, that um, there are these overlaps between the way that a lot of early Christian mystics talked about the Christ and the way mystics in general talk about, you know, um, you know, other words for this kind of source or consciousness. Um, and then the way we have like quantum scientists now talking about the quantum field, right? That there is no separation, that everything is an expression of the one quantum field it's okay. They call it quantum field. Other people might have called it Christ, but it's still the same sort of ultimate consciousness that permeates everything 
uh, you know, that, that, that there is. That kind of stuff is super cool. And I can, I can see that all that stuff really sparked some ideas for Phil. And then I, I'm fascinated by the ways he kind of found interesting ways to put that into his, into his novels. Did you, did you do you have a feeling about uh, the exegesis tends to be particularly divisive? <laughs> yeah. Uh, people either love actually in my experience people love it or hate it with very little in between. I, <laughs> David, I can't remember uh, your feelings about it, but Keith, what are you do, do you uh, uh, enjoy that? I or, think or it's, it's pretty fun? unreadable. To be <laughs> okay. Yeah. But see, I like I like the density of it. I, I like. Yeah the Ahabesque insanity of it, you know? So, no, that's, I think that's it. I think, um, I mean, in gen- I love it, I'll say up front. Yeah, me I too. It, but, <laughs> but, but the reason I love it, again, it takes a certain kind of person, right? So, like, I'll use an analogy. Um, like, when I watch movies, I love movies that have an ambiguous ending. I love that in, in Inception, they don't show you if the top falls over or not, and I love that. Yeah. And all kinds of movies like that where, you, where it fades to black, and all your questions aren't answered, and now you want to turn to your to your neighbor or anybody else who's talked, seen the movie before, and have this great conversation about oh, different theories and ways of thinking about it. And to me, that's what the exegesis is, because Phil didn't know what the hell he was talking about either. The whole thing was him trying to work something out to make sense of something. Right. And what's what's really funny too is very much like the Bible, um, Phil contradicts himself, you know. But over here, you said at the beginning you were thinking this way, and like you know. 10, 10 pages later, you decided you threw that out, and now you're on to another theory, and you're working right. on something else. But then 10 pages later, you're gonna don't, you're gonna chuck that, and you're gonna go into another direction. But I like that I, because it's um, I I think it's a really beautiful, honest, transparent snapshot of Phil genuinely trying to understand and make sense of, frankly, something that can't be you know, that kind of transcends language. And, mm-hmm. and comprehension, right? What what is God? What is Christ? What is what are these weird experiences he's had? And he you see him struggling, like trying to shove different things. Well, maybe it was this, or maybe it was that, or no, no, it wasn't that. It was this, and um, and I, know, I just appreciate that he's doing that. It's sort of beyond the thunderdome of the uh, the logo, the logos beyond the yeah. logos that he. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The logos of the Christ. Yes, that's the yeah, other yeah. The metaphor. Yep. Right. Well, and look, the more I research him and study him, I think next time I go back to the exegesis, it'll be I'll be able to detect what was going on with him. So I'll, I'll probably be more readable oh, there than you the go. last time I tried to. But and, and I will tell you, because the religious aspects of what Phil was going what was going on with him is the least interesting part for me. So see, see funny. I love that stuff. I know you don't care about that, but I love that. To me, that's my kind of. Uh, alternate history like and I, I i mean can i just ask you like sure because one of the things i love about do andrew's dream of electric sheep um is the sort of the mercerism i just wrote a blog post about this you know, about a month ago um going back and looking again at mercerism uh i just think it's so compelling and it's so um because he uses this idea of empathy i mean empathy is sort of the main core thing in uh mercerism right where everybody grabs the handles of the of the box the empathy box whatever and they're not only are they connected and they can feel what mercer feels as he's climbing and getting hit by the stones um they also are sharing a consciousness and an empathy with everyone on the planet who at that moment is also holding on right so it's this amazing um 
like a, a, an epiphany and awareness of, oh, we are all connected. We are all, you know, through this box, yes, but beyond that, you know, supernaturally, we're all connected. And I just find that so beautiful and so fascinating. Um, that's To me, that's a great part. And and spoiler, I'm not, hopefully not too much of a spoiler, but I just read The Zap Gun, and I just thought it was genius the way empathy, in a way, is used as a weapon in Zap Gun. I just thought that that was a beautiful little twist to the story. Um, so I, just, I don't know. I appreciate that kind of stuff. And so I, yeah. you don't Mercer find that interesting? Mercer is really find dynamic. Yeah. Just and real. I come at it from animal rights. Oh, okay. Right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> from That's my perspective. Professor Wilson? I was just going to say Mercerisms. I, I, I'm with uh, uh, um, Keith. Because <laughs> Mercerism in particular, which I love, is really dynamic because it pulls from multiple sources. Like there's Buddhism in there. There's Christianity. There's yeah. mythology, right? Just the very yeah. act of... Is it Nar- Narcissus who, push, who pushes the rock? Sisyphus is pushing Sisyphus. the rock. Sisyphus. Yeah, you're That's right. right. Yeah, it's a com- it's a it's an amalgam of Jesus who's suffering, right, for, for right. whatever, and then suffering is sort of the way, and like Buddha and all that stuff, yeah. Well, what, one of the reasons I brought up Acts of Paul, which was really interesting, is that when I kept talking to these experts in Manichaeism, they, they kept, they, I, all of them asked me, how did Phil hear about Manichaeism in the early 70s or in the early 80s? Like, because it wasn't like a super common thing. No, right? no, it's not. Right. And I can't answer that. <laughs> I don't know where his interest came. But except for we know that he was really interested in all kinds of Gnostic stuff. And right. so what I was one of the things I was saying is, is that, well, even though it's my it's the part of Phil that's the least interesting to me. I'm more interested in the writer and all that stuff. I still find it fascinating because it says so much about, you know, his search. And I think that the exegesis now, because now I'll be reading the exegesis looking for how things like that happened, you know, like, is there evidence in the exegesis where he talks about, you know, does he reference Manny at some point and does he does he do this? So I think it'll it'll read differently for me. But that leads me back to Keith. Um, so let's talk about this class you're teaching and like, you know, how you're approaching. Is this I mean, are people going to, you know, it's funny because when I was first talking to Gil and and Dave, we have like a thread going on Facebook where we just like constantly are talking about PKD and Gil and I had this hilarious interaction because I said, I'm working on acts of Paul. And he said, because a lot of the, the beliefs of Manny is the light and dark side. He said, is it totally star Wars? Oh, wow. and I laughed and I said, yeah, but Gnostic as fuck. And <laughs> we just kind of laughed about it. And th- this whole, not like his, not, Phil's knowledge of Gnosticism is probably the backbone of your class, right? Of what you're doing? Is it, uh, is it using Phil as a way to teach what the Gnostics were doing? Is a my little question. bit. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, um, I mean, I hope it's a little bit of all of it. You know what I mean? Uh, it's not like I'm not using Phil as an excuse to talk about those things. It really is like, let's talk about Philip K. Dick and his life and his background and you know, all this amazing stuff that, that he went through and um, the pink laser beam and, you know, uh, having this this uh, this epiphany that his son 
needed a, an emergency surgery and all, all that kind of stuff, which I think is so great. The, the break into his house and all that stuff. Um, but I mean, I'm also, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm looking at in, in the class. I mean, so what this is, the online class I'm doing in August, the gospel of Philip K. Dick, um, I, I, I taught a course at UTEP here, UT El Paso. Um, and, uh, and what I did was I, in that class I did, I just kind of like covered the novels. It was more like literary stuff. So it was like, you know, we looked at, we looked at Drano's Dream of Electric Sheep. We looked at Vallis. We looked at Flow My Tears, The Policeman Said. Um, I think those are the three main ones I looked at. And, um, and I just, you know, I went through the novel and the story and the plot and the themes. But when I came to some of these themes, I would connect them to other ideas and I would connect them to, you know, Phil's uh, obsession with like, you know, we all we all know Philip K. Dick's big things were constantly questioning what is real and how do I know and what does it mean to be human and how do I know? Right. So all those kind of like paranoid, self-reflective kind of things that he does, which are very philosophical. When I come to those points in the novel, I will stop and talk about those a little bit more in depth. And then I will, you know, pull in maybe some quotes from the exegesis or uh, or pull in things like quantum science kind of stuff where I've uh, just read some really fascinating books by some quantum scientists where they end up sounding a little bit like Philip K. Dick um, or, or, or they end up sounding like some kind of a mystic, you know, and I just find all that's the overlap to all those things to me is really fascinating. So I, I guess there's layers to all of that. You're going to get all of that when you take the class. It's mainly going to be, let's look at Philip K. Dick. Let's look at his novels, some of the major novels. But we're also then going to look at all these these, these themes of questioning, how do I know what's real? Um, can I trust my memory? Can I trust what I see in front of me? Can I trust my eyes and ears and my experiences? Um, and what what is it that makes me human, right? Uh, and which I also love, again, this gets back to the empathy question. Um, you know, what makes someone human is that they have an empathy for, for other people, for animals, um, and, and they're capable of that and they express that. And so, yeah, so that, I cover all those kind of things in the class. Keith, is it, it, it's online, right? It will be online. Yes. Yeah. So, um, I do a straight? lot of online classes. Uh -huh. Um, uh, mostly the classes that I've done to this point are on my, based on my books. So like every, every one of the Jesus Sun series has an, a corresponding class. And it's like awesome. always like a three week class. It's like 1999. Um, it's just sort of like I walk you through the book and I always try to go deeper. When I'm researching a book, I always have, I make little playlists. Like I'll make a YouTube playlist of like interviews, debates, TED talks, you know, uh, interesting documentaries, whatever. I'll just put all this stuff that's related to the different things I'm going to cover in that book. And so when I do the course, it's really great because then I can do my lecture on that chapter, but then I can say, Hey, here's a clip. Watch this, or you know, check this out, and, and I can add more extra material. Right? I can really expand the topic a lot more than just what's in the book. So that's what I've done on my Jesus Sun books. Um, I did one for the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, so there's a class on the Gospel of Thomas that's already up there now. Um, and and so yeah, for Philip K. Dick, that's what it'll be too. It'll be online. It'll be like three weeks. Yeah, it'll be like a three week course again. It'll be 1999, same kind of thing. Um, and it'll probably be more self-paced so that, you know, people can watch as many as they want. They can go as fast as they want. They can go as slow as they want. They can go back and watch something again. Like once you register, you'll always have access. It won't expire. It doesn't go away. Um, and hopefully, you know, it's like a really good overview. Like, as I said, it fills his, you know, his better novels and exploring those main themes that he deals with.
is because uh, I teach a lot of online classes that are uh, not all of them, but uh, text based uh, uh, with, with other stuff thrown in there. But I don't have a lot of like uh, it's called IVDL where, where I am, wherein, uh, you know, there's a screen and I can see the students and we can actually directly yeah. interact. Yes. Is there that or? Yeah. You, you yeah. Have so, no, there isn't. Um, I, oh, I do have some. I, I do actually don't some. like that that much. Yeah. I want to say, yeah. Always so, glitching and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, all of my book courses that I've done and the Thomas course that I've done and, and this course will be sort of pre pre-recorded videos for each individual you know daily lecture on whatever topic i'm covering right um and so and but now some of my classes i have done i i've got a longer uh it's like a course in community i do called square one and that runs for like three months and there are weekly lectures and then there's a a live zoom call that i do with everybody i I just kind of walk them through that whole three month you know course and so that's a lot more intensive and all that, and I love doing it because I do get to help people process some of these kind of like toxic theologies that they're kind of coming out of and figure out what for themselves. I don't tell them because I don't know, but I try to help them figure out what for them makes sense moving forward. Sure. Um, so that's what I've been doing in Square One, but it does involve this sort of live Zoom thing, which I love and hate because it like, and I've been doing it now for like four years and I don't have weekends. Like my Saturdays are, I'm on a Zoom. I'm, I'm with a bunch of people on a Zoom call, and I'm, every, you know, and I'm walking through. And I have a square one, I have a square two, and there's a square three that runs on Sunday. So um, because of that, um, when I do these kind of classes, like I'm not going to include a Zoom element because it's like I'm already zooming way too much. <laughs> Understood. Understood. Um, all right. Anything else you want to say about the class before we move on to the collection? Um, no, that's good. I mean, it's just, it'll start August, uh, August 7th and, um, it'll be self-paced. So like I said, you can, anytime you register it, um, you know, you can, it'll be there for you. You can take it, go as fast or slow as you want. I have so one more question just to clarify for uh, yeah. listeners or viewers. So this, uh, the class you're talking about, the, the PKD class is not through UTL Paso. It's just no. anybody can take it, right? Thank you. Yeah, that's right. No, it's not affiliated with anything. Like I just have a, Basically, I have, a, I have a, a Podia website, which is, a, you know, you, you can buy um, a subscription to something like Podia or Kajabi is another one. And it allows you to record stuff and sell courses. So, yeah, that it's all based on my own uh, Podia platform and it'll be hosted there and it's not affiliated with the university or anything like that. Cool. Very cool. All right. So Sci-Fi Lullabies, Volume 1. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, tell me about the selecting the stories for the first volume. Like, what what was your thinking for putting these stories together? Um, that you well, maybe we should go through them. Um, sure. Uh, Beyond lies the wub, which is um, uh, an obvious, very early story. Yeah. Uh, the gun, right? the skull. The Defenders, uh, which was a early precursor of the penultimate truth, of course. Right. Mr. Spaceship, Piper in the Woods, um, Second Variety, which I consider to be Phil's second best masterpiece of any kind, Ooh, and then oh, the wow. Eyes Have. So um, I'm curious. Yeah, though, what we, do you think? What do you think? What do you say is the first masterpiece? Uh, Three Stigmata. Oh, oh wow. Okay, very cool. 
Yeah, so um, th- there wasn't a, a whole lot of like, um, the only thought around it was like, uh, I liked how the stories, most of the stories in volume one, the ones you just read, um, they all have a very strong kind of like anti-war uh, story. And not all of them, but like there's several of them in there that are very much sort of like exposing the stupidity of war as, you know, it's just a bad idea. Or what, um, humanity's worst ideas ever like, we have a disagreement, so why don't we just send our children out to kill each other until one of us says uncle? Um, yeah, maybe there's a better way to solve that, right? So anyway, I just love, and I love the way Phil approaches that topic. So I tried to group those together a little bit. Um, and I did put, I, I also tried, again, there's three volumes. And what I also tried to do was put um, some lesser known earlier ones together, but also with some of the ones that I that I feel like are some of his better short stories too. So there was always be like one or two. They're like, hey, this is these are great stories. These are like A level, and then there be some other ones in there that um, I think are really good, but may not be as well known as some other stories. So in this volume one, you know, second variety is one of the one of the big ones there. Um, yeah. And you know, and I try. I don't to do know what's in volume two, but I have read all the stories in volume three, obviously, because I'm yes about to do the forward. And uh, in volume three, I think the two real standout stories are the the turning wheel and the unreconstructed M. Yeah, um, which that are... one's one of my favorites. I yeah. I when I read unreconstructed M, it was one of those things where I read it and I was I feel like there are certain things that that Phil wrote that when I'm reading it, I feel like oh my gosh, man, this is like this could have been written yesterday. Like this could be I could see this on on a on a on a Netflix, you know, series or on a film right now. It was like, it's the, it's the way it's thought out. The, there's just really just, there's something about it that makes it stand out from some of his other stories. And I, I love that story so much. And the other feel, the other weird effect I had like that was not the whole thing, but the, the first chapter of Counterclock World, um, the way it's written where the policeman, you know, it goes to the graveyard and he calls everybody and they're digging the body out and all that stuff. Like that whole scene, I could see that whole scene in my head. Like this is the opening to like a really cool sci-fi horror film. Um, but and then I read, then... Then I read chapter two and <laughs> and blew that up. <laughs> yeah. Hey, was, it, was it difficult to uh, uh, secure copyright? No. So this no, is the thing. They're public all public domain. domain. They uh, are. Yes. Oh How? yeah. They. Doesn't have to be like a hundred years or eighty. No, years. no, no. So there was there basically. Um, I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but what from what I can, what I've come across, um, I think in the fifties at some point. Is that right? Or maybe not. Maybe it was. Maybe it was like later. I want to say maybe in the seventies. There was some point where, um, if 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 the copyright holders would renew the copyright, it would be extended for another, I don't know, fifty years or something. Um, and the estate at the time. I guess they did, you know, they got all the novels and they got most of his short stories, but he wrote 100 and what, 20 something short stories. Yeah. So they didn't get them all. And so there's like, I think 30 or 40 um, short stories that are either public domain or at least are in the iffy category of like, no one really knows because um, there was, uh, I did come across some, someone had researched this where um, even the paperwork that was turned in, a lot of it was wrong so they, because you had to list the original copyright date and the original publication, like oh, it, this was in fantasy and science fiction, you know, volume blah blah blah, nineteen whatever, and like about ten of them were just completely off or made up or just wrong. So um, because of that, they lapsed as well. 
So, and now there's a story behind that whole thing with the copyright too. With adjustment uh, team, are you getting the to adjustment that? team? Yes. Yeah, I was about to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that there was a yeah famous lawsuit. I think this is partly how this came up. That there was oh by the way, there's a whole lot of Philip K. Dick stuff in the public domain. Um, when they were making Adjustment Bureau, right with Matt Damon, whatever the studio yeah. was, that the, the so they went to the estate and you know Isa Dick and those people, and they said you know we want to we want to make this movie, and um, and they said so they I think they gave him like a million dollars or something to for the rights to make the film. And they're about halfway through finished filming the movie when someone realizes, oh, hey, by the way, this is public domain. And so that then they're kind of like, oh, hey, you know what? We'd like that money back because we paid you for rights to something that we didn't need to because it's public domain. And it went to court and it was a big thing. And I think as a result of that court case, it sort of came out that that it was that that, that story was public domain and that therefore a whole lot of other ones were as well. Oh. Yeah, that's how. It, if the adjustment team thing hadn't happened, we wouldn't know how many Probably had not. fallen into public domain. And no, part of it other, is, is is that Paul Williams was the executor for the estate, but when he died, um, the family took over. But Paul Williams knew what he was doing as executor <laughs> yeah. of the estate. But and it's not to say that he said she's been a really great advocate as a producer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But some of the stuff and and personally, my feeling, I, the one thing I wish they would do differently with the literary stuff is the Mariner editions are the boringest, worst covers. And <laughs> what I really wish they would do is all new paperback editions with new introductions, yeah, new covers, give people a reason to buy new editions because, you mm -hmm. know, with um, academic uh, supplements and bonus features. Yeah. Oh yeah, like they could yeah. do so much with, with with those novels if they reprinted them right. And yeah. um, unfortunately, like and it does Mariner editions. I mean, I have a lot of them because I don't mind marking them up because um, my versions are all like highlighted to hell and. Oh wow! No, I don't. I don't. Well, um, yeah, you're doing research, I guess. Yeah. Well, I guess I just I reached over and pulled out my. Uh, Man in the High Castle, you can see like oh, yeah. just random let me, page. Let me, see that. let me see the cover of that. Yeah, what's that, the cover? It's oh, just yeah, red. I, I, can't, I can't believe what Mirror How boring is that? That's so boring. Yeah, it's so, I mean, of all, like, especially when, like, the Berkeley paperback had that amazing cover with all, like, the swastikas and, yeah. you know, and all that. And it's, you know. But I like those old, vin the, I mean, we were talking about this uh, in the last episode, those vintage covers. They're crazy, but there's something appealing about them. Keith, your cover is really, I really like it. It's very, uh, uh, it's dynamic, but it's professional looking too. Yes. Yeah. So, the, yeah. Um, and, you know? Thank you. Yeah. So that's, that, again, sort of our vision. I'll just do a little bit of backstory. So um, choir, I, I became, myself and my friend, Matthew Stefano, um, Choir Publishing has been around for like seven years or so. And so they were my publisher, uh, and I, I was just being published by them. And so that whole seven-part series I did, I, I was just an author with them. Um, oh. but the guy that started the company um, reached a point where like this was sort of – he started on the side, and it had grown to the point where it was just too big, and he had he has another job that's you know, providing very well for his family. And he's a designer. So he designs all the covers for all the oh. choir books, and he's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, so he's st he stuck around. So he's still doing covers for us. And we're very grateful for that. 
Um, but anyway, we Matthew and I took over the company in January. So when we did, that's when we started making some changes to the company. And one of the things we wanted to do was this what we called the Choir Classic series. And that was going uh, originally was just like finding public domain books. So things like uh, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran or um, Alice in Wonderland, right, by Lewis Carroll or Call of the Wild by Jack London or just like finding these books that are in public domain and putting putting some great covers on them and getting interesting people to write forwards, right? So there's some new material that we're adding to this book because, um, you know, they're out there. It's not like, oh, you can't get a copy. You, you can get all kinds of copies. They're, they're all over the place. But we wanted to create something that was like hopefully going to help these story, these novels initially find a new audience, right? And so we, we already had launched that and that's done really well. And so, so because we were already in this mode of looking for things that are in public domain that we thought we could really uh, find someone, we could match somebody to do a forward who would already has a following, has, has you know, the, bring readers to this to these books. Um, we were already doing that successfully. Yeah. It just sort of dawned on me like, well, if you go to Gutenberg, which is there's a, you know, Gutenberg is where all of these public domain um, books and stories are kind of cataloged and you can do a search. So if you search Philip K. Dick, you will a whole bunch of short stories come up and then it's like, oh, well, then they're in public domain. <laughs> and so then I started looking through them and like, all right, I'm a huge Philip K. Dick fan. Uh, I'm definitely writing the forward to volume one, but there's enough stories here that we could do volume two and volume three and maybe even volume four. Um, so let's do it. Right. So let's get a great cover. Let's write. I want to cover. write the one for volume four. Please. All right. <laughs> if we do a volume four, you're on, man. <laughs> you're on. Thank you. So, yeah. yeah, so that was that was where the idea came from. <laughs> and uh, and so far, it's been great. Like, you know, we've gotten great feedback from people. Um, and again, like it's also it's also again, like I'm not going to act like you can't find these short stories. I mean, they're they're published everywhere. Um, but again, we're just trying to reintroduce it, sort of relaunch it and hopefully help some people find and discover Philip K. Dick's work that, you know, they're they're in that group of people that are like, who's Philip K. Dick? Like, right. Yeah, and well, I got to yeah. say, like, this is a, a, a good collection of stories. You've given a good reason why they're bound together. Um, when, I, I can only speak to volume one and three because I haven't seen two yet. Um, three, another great story that's in there, The Turning Wheel, yeah. is one of my favorites, which, of course, you know, uh, shot, uh, shots fired at L. Ron Hubbard back in yes. the 50s <laughs> by, by uh, PKD. Um, yes hit in that story and you know i well and i can just tell you that my personal feeling like in writing the forward is that my idea is like i want to give people a reason enough to get the book like that there's going to be enough flavor and vibe that i can add to it you know and it's one of the nice things that that you've done for with the forward of, of your book of of your volume so and i appreciate that Thank um you. and also this one has second variety in it yes so. <laughs> that's and right well i will give you a tease variety. the the one the volume two um that tessa is writing the forward to uh the bigger ones in that are the golden man and the variable man uh that mm -hmm. those are both because those are come on those are huge stories uh some of you know those well-known stories very uh, what the golden man was made into that horrible i can't believe those are public domain yes that's what i'm saying when, when i look them up i'm like are you kidding me i can't believe that these got overlooked i mean i i would understand if something like the the skull 
or you know what I mean? Some of these like, yeah, it's okay. Uh, you know, but to let something yeah. lapse yeah. that is such iconic when you think of Philip K. Dick, the variable man, the golden man, like second variety, unreconstructed M, like I can't believe that these got these got left behind, but well, they did. Yeah, well, I mean, and, a lot of the these authors... tends to be pretty possessive, right? Uh, uh, the, the, oh yeah, if these least... were not public domain, I'm sure I'd have a cease and desist already. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's funny because, um, yeah, I think the I think the estate and the family was was pretty upset. Uh, with how it turned out, but there's not much they can do about it now. Yeah, sadly, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, so um, in this uh, collection of the first couple stories, we, um, I don't know, is there anything else you want to say about, because um, this one's available now, right? People. Yes, can... this one's out now. Yeah. Yep, it's on Kindle, and it's on, uh, it's in paperback. Uh, it's available on, uh, yeah, on Amazon, and... Yeah, it's, you know, and again, we, we put a lot of work into it. I think, you know, if you look through, it's kind of hard to see on the video, but, um, you know, we put these cool little, like, you know, separators in here, like little Saturns and things like that. We just tried to make it something really special and rather than just slapping it together and um, try to go through them. I think, yeah, putting it, putting it together was a lot of fun. Um, and then, you know, hearing people who have been reading it and discovering Philip K. Dick, I mean, my mom is starting to read it, and I don't know that my mom would ever re have read them if it wasn't like, oh, my son put these together, right? <laughs> right. Well, um, yeah. Well, it, it's funny because as somebody who likes recovered science fiction, um, you know, the fact that the public domain's out there that, you know, that some of these authors, like, you know, we have the ability to put them back in print just because... Yes. You know, nobody else is doing it, so you might as well, like, you know, recover some of these authors. Uh, not yeah. that Phil needs to be recovered; he doesn't need to be recovered. But at right, the same right. time, it's fun, right? So, yeah. Well, um, I know the thing that's also been cool too about this, like in general, about this Quar Classic series, like you know, when we did um, Khalil Gibran's *The Prophet*, again, that book is not out of print. I mean, it's but it's in public domain. But I mean, again, you can find there's lots and lots of versions of that. But when we put out our version with a new cover and a new forward, um, Paul Young, the guy that wrote The Shack, wrote the forward to that. And that in that book, The Prophet, Kaluga Braun's book, went to number one for like two weeks. Um, and like, that was awesome. It was really cool to be able to say, hey, we put Kaluga Braun's book back in number one uh, on Amazon. Like, that's really cool. Because you know what I mean? Like, it's otherwise, I mean, yes, there, but you got to look for it. You got to be people that already know about it. This yeah. is like an opportunity for people to discover something. And I know a lot of people that came to me and said, like, I never even heard of this book, but I'm going to give it a shot because, you know, the people that are involved with it, that choir's, you know, putting it out, that Paul Young wrote the foreword, has a great cover. Like, yeah, why not? Uh, I'm going to read it for the first time. And that's what's kind of cool about it. I think also, just real quick, when it comes to, we see a lot of people today, unfortunately, coming from sort of a religious background. And what they're trying to do is ban books and you know get rid of books so we're excited to like resurrect some books and put things back in print and keep things out there um that's kind of our vision good yeah no it's cool um this i think it's a it's a cool project um i think it's good to because here's the thing you know right now the estate's putting out books with covers like this yeah 
So no offense, because they're doing. I know they've got higher priorities. Sure. The state's priorities are keeping him in production, and they're doing a great job with that. Yes, and I'm glad they are. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Are there okay. are there there are currently two volumes out now? No, no. The, volume one is only out now. Volume okay. two with Tessa Dick. Uh, her forward's already written, so um, we just got to put it together. It'll probably be out. Um, I'd say before Christmas, sometime before okay. the end of the year, and then. Um, then volume three with David's forward will be out um, for like first quarter of next year. Okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. So uh, anything else, Keith, that you want to, you want to tell the dickheads out there? Well, I, don't, I guess the one thing I will say too, is that um, choir is kind of going all in on sci-fi right now. So we're, we are currently collecting um, chapters for short story uh, anthology we're doing. So this is new uh, you know, we already have probably about half of the book completed, and um, we've got some really interesting short stories. Um, David, you sent me one, which we're going to use. Um, Claudia Christian, who was who, who was on Babylon Five, she sent me one uh, with her co-author, and um, that one's really good. We're going to use that. Tessa Dick sent me one that's a new story she sent me. We're going to use that one. So, and a bunch of other people that are uh, some that are published authors, some that are not. Um, so that's cool. That's an anthology we're hoping to put out pretty soon. Um, we're also doing new science fiction as well. So there's a, I, just, I gotta, I gotta pitch this book. The, the, it's a, the book is called the person on the other side of this book. And it's a, a brand new author's name is Samuel Tanner. And it's sort of this beautiful blending of like Kurt Vonnegut and Philip Dick. It's got Vonnegut's kind of like writing style, kind of like snarky, you know, first person kind of funny, um, but dark humor. And but it's got Philip K. Dick's thing also where he's kind of going very philosophical and kind of what is is this real or not. And it's really great. It's a really great novel. And that's what Choir just put that out. That's been out for about a month. And we have another one, another author, author uh, his name is Brandon Andrus. And he has a really great book called um, What Can't Be Hidden. And his follow up book, And So By Fire, will be out in about another month or two. Um, so we're doing yeah, we're, we're publishing science fiction and whether it's Philip K. Dick, you know, his short stories, whether it's anthologies, whether it's new authors, um, you know, we're wanting, we want to establish Choir as being uh, a science fiction publisher uh, that we're interested in publishing stuff like that. Um, yeah, no, I, I think you're doing really fun and exciting stuff. So, um, and I, I, yeah. Um, Keith, I will be seeing you for dinner in San Diego soon. Um, yeah. Uh, so next we sh- we talk shall be over Thai food. Um, and yes, for the, yeah, for the Comic Con, yeah, the little Philip Dick panel. All right. Oh my. Yeah, that'll be fun. And um, so I will be seeing you soon. Uh, but tell the folks how they can find all your work. Where sure. are the best places to do that? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, well, so if you just go to my name, keithgiles.com, K-E-I-T-H-G-I-L-E-S.com, that'll take you to my Patheos blog, um, and I blog there pretty regularly. I also do, uh, every Friday I publish, uh, it's called The Inner Circle. It's a basically a weekly commentary on one of the sayings uh, from the Gospel of Thomas. And uh, so all that's at keithgiles.com. You can find that. All my books are on Amazon, um, so, you know, you can find them there. Uh, I'm on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, even on YouTube and all that stuff. And um, I also do some podcasting. So I have a, my solo podcast is it's called Second Cup with Keith. And um, you can find that anywhere you find a podcast. I also do Apostates Anonymous with my friend Matt. 
who also is co-owner of uh, Choir Publishing with me. That's just a lot of fun. Uh, we, we love making up fake sponsors for our podcast. So every episode is a, is a fake commercial for a sponsor. It's hilarious. Um, and I do another one that I've been doing now for about seven or eight years called um, Heretic Happy Hour. And I, I'm a co-host of that with like three other people. So that's also a lot of fun. Well, you know, this episode was sponsored by um, Looney Luke's um, jalopy, uh, Mars jalopies. Um, so, so if you need a Mars jalopy, Looney Luke's. Um, but uh, yeah, it was great having you here. Um, you know, I've been meaning to have you on Dickheads for a long time. We were waiting for the right uh, project to promote, um, but uh, we've been chatting for a bit. And um, it's nice to virtually meet you in person. Uh, Professor Wilson, do you have any other questions or anything else you want to ask? I don't. I, it was nice to meet you, Keith. Hopefully yeah, nice to meet you guys. Talking and seeing you again. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, on that note, as always, we always sign off by reminding everyone to keep it paranoid. Stay paranoid. Later, dickheads. Later, dickheads.